Welcome, everyone, to our podcast, Land and People, where we interview people with ancestral ties to the land, practitioners who are working on the land. Every other weekend, we release a new interview with folks. And we're grateful to our sponsor, University of Hawaii, whose views are not represented, right, Clay? How do we say it? <laughs> but um, yeah, the views and opinions expressed here are not those of uh, University of Hawaii um, or uh, our employers, grantors, funders, partners, <laughs> supervisors, employers. Yeah. So, um, you know, we want to just create the space where folks are open to talk about things. A lot of folks are um, so far kind of retirement mode. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it's kind of nice to have that they're, they're a little bit more free potentially to, to share their ideas and opinions, we hope. Yes. Yes. And so we've been doing a pretty deep dive into Molokai land issues and um, Kanaka Maoli perspective and so forth. And in those interviews, we've talked with folks who've worked for the Nature Conservancy, uh, who I've worked with, and that includes our next guest, who is kind of amazing, Suzanne Case. She's actually the retired chair of the Department of Land and Natural Resources and formerly the director of the Nature Conservancy Hawaii and Palmyra. So you'll hear that, by the way, in the in the interview, we say DLNR a lot, and yep. that's what that refers to, Case you Yeah, exactly. The DLNR, which they are the public agency in Hawaii that I believe has about a quarter of the land under its purview. And um, let's just say not the budget to uh, manage, actively manage all their mandates. Yeah, I think they're about a, about a half a percent of the state budget at this point goes to DLNR. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty incredible department to you know, manage everything from the coastal areas and the help with fisheries management all the way up to the tops of the mountains under public land and under public trust. And and Suzanne was the director of that for eight years under the last uh, governor. But as I said, she comes from a conservation background as an attorney with the Nature Conservancy. And uh, yeah, it's it was amazing to talk with her. Yeah, we got into some stuff, into some really like very current and controversial topics like water rights and access and access to, you know, fisheries. And and then this is sort of where I think a lot of the conversation revolves around is like, how does an agency actually support community access to these resources? And as, despite the <laughs> the failing of that term to really capture what we're really getting at, right? It's it's more like, you know, livelihoods and well-being and and, and all about the places that, that, that they're working in. And so it was kind of neat to hear just kind of from an agency that that does catch a lot of flack, frankly, right? That, you know, as far as state lands and there's a lot of controversy over what that means and, you know, the state as an institution uh, and as a land holder, um, but that there are some examples and that uh, I think Suzanne really articulated them beautifully about how, at least while she was there, how the they, they really the DLNR really worked to recognize, formally recognize um, community rights and community access, and and really depends on communities to protect um, and care for these places. Totally, I think. And Suzanne didn't say it in this interview, but I've heard her say it before that the future is the the past and the future is community in the care and the stewardship of of our commons that are under public trust. And and I couldn't agree more with that. Um, do you want to say, Clay, what PASH stands for and what, what that is in this podcast? I don't because, even think I know what it stands for. It's uh, about shoreline access. That's all I know. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, that's let's, another let's another acronym. Pause. Yeah. Cash. <laughs> Cash. I know um, I looked it up. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Public Access Shoreline Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. There was basically a Supreme Court case um, arguing for access to shoreline, you know, access to the shoreline. So you think about an island, especially like Oahu, where you've got crazy coastal development, right? Mm-hmm. This was a case that essentially established. Um, access points to get to the, to get to a commons, to get to the, the shoreline so people can fish and recreate and do all their things that they, that we love to do. Um, and so Suzanne talks about kind of revisiting that and revisiting the sort of state's role in supporting that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just, you know, it's just this example. Uh, I was just actually talking about this with a friend last week. This is like an incredible uh, example where you actually have an institution, you know, recognizing um, that this is just, you know, you cannot inhibit access to, to places like you, the public deserves and, and demands <laughs> um access to that, to that area, those areas is commons, right? And we have a hard time. Yes. We don't really talk about commons and we kind of think of a hard time thinking about it uh, apart from these really sort of uh, misplaced fallacies, like tragedy of the commons, but that there are common resources that we're talking about. Water is a really obvious one that we get into. Mm-hmm. Shoreline access is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, we, uh, it, it's a really, interesting area of discussion just simply because so much of our society is around privatization. And I have all yeah. sorts of opinions about privatization but, that we don't have to get into right now, but you know, this is a, it's just kind of a cool, cool area of discussion. Yeah. Especially because we haven't ever, I, I know really almost nothing about the legal framework under which, you know, a lot of, a lot of our comments falls here in Hawaii. So Suzanne helped to clarify some of that and, and really get into her love of place. And she's our first one from Hawaii Island. So I'm super stoked to have a perspective about, about a place that I love and have come to love in the last few years that I moved here. And so with that, we'll introduce our next guest here, Suzanne Case, the former chair of the Department of Land and Natural Resources, State of Hawaii. So Clay and I got to know each other because I work part-time with Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization on the specific fire exchange program yeah. that, you know, where where Clay is the PI for that, that program um, in, you know, basically like science communication regarding wildfire. So that's how we, he and I yeah. have gotten to know each other. And then we wanted to do this thing where we were interviewing the, the elders <laughs> uh, in conservation. Yeah, like Clay's like... <laughs> we, we're, we can't really say that. Like I have enough gray in my beard. <laughs> well, it's hilarious to be an elder. I, I know. We were teasing Brian. We're like, I, can we call you Kupuna uh, technically? Because you have like 13 grandkids, you know, like you're definitely Kupuna status. So um. my my sister-in-law, one day we were out to her and she's like, you, you know, you can't. I said like, thanks, uncle, to someone. She's like, you can't, you can't oh. say that anymore. <laughs> so Suzanne, um, welcome to our podcast. We're recording right now. Um, and uh, Clay, you want to you want to start us off here? Sure. I think we've started almost every interview with the same question of just, you know, a little bit about where you're from and kind of how you got connected to you know, to this place that you, where you worked and lived for your life. What are some of the experiences growing up that, that really connected you to place? Sure. Well, you know, I, my upbringing really does add up to a, a, a love of place. Uh, I, I was very fortunate to grow up for the first 10 years of my life in Keokaha in Hilo. And it was a, just a totally outdoors experience. Uh, my parents, you know, pushed us out the door and called us back with the dinner bell. And so we just explored all over the place and we, we went swimming right across the street. My dad would come home from work and take us and, you know, for, um, we'd do underwater uh, swimming on his back and, there were ponds. There's so many springs there and ponds, and they're all connected. You can see them rise and fall with the with the tides and lava flats out in the out in the front where you could you could collect cowrie and not step on vana and <laughs> and um, and then I I also had a you know a, a really uh, wonderful opportunity as it turns out um, after the. Uh, tsunami in 1960, or uh, I was I was at Waikiki and that shut down. And we we transferred to Keokaha Elementary. So I spent two years at Keokaha, and that that sort of infused my life with a whole group of Hawaiian friends and Hawaiian culture. So I, I got this pretty powerful sort of combination connection of, of of outdoors and Hawaiian culture. And then we just you know we just explored all over the island, and then ultimately all over all of the islands when I was growing up and uh, my, my parents were just so um, encouraging of being outdoors and exploring. And they loved, you know, four wheel drive, uh, driving off roads, Jeep roads and 
trails and sailing in, in, in bays and along coastlines. And they loved USGS maps. They had a ton of them uh, for, for, for the islands and also nautical charts. Oh. And then another thing I think I, I got, I got a lot of just in various places, vacations and, and living is, is a lot of independent sort of systems for the, the basic functions of life, like water catchment and uh, septic systems mm-hmm. and, and generators, right. which, you know, now yeah. just off the grid kind trans, of off grid now transfer to, you know, solar panels and, and that kind of thing. And, right. and then just, you know, hiking and camping and snorkeling right. and body surfing and sailing. Yeah. And well, one time my, my, my cousin was my cousin, my uncle was a pilot for small planes. And so my cousin and I would hitchhike inner island on planes. And so one time in oh, high school, way. he and I and a, a friend hitchhiked to Molokai and then out to the Lava <laughs> Valley. And I had this the book, I don't know if you remember, living off living with nature in Hawaii. And so our goal was to try to live off the land and that was very hard. <laughs> How old were you when you did this, when you did this like hitchhiking adventure? 10th grade, spring break, 10th grade. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Did your parents know you were going or did you just like leave a note or something? Oh, okay. <laughs> going foraging, mom. <laughs> Another island, see you. <laughs> it, took, it took so long to get anything to eat by the like the third day we were we were starving. It was like, you can't <laughs> do it on, on coconut and opihi and what I hoped was, was uh, taro and we never could quite, quite get there. And, um, <laughs> and we, got, we got rescued by a church group camping next door that oh, felt sorry for us and uh, gave us crackers and, and dried seeds. Anyway, a lot of stuff like that. It was just, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so funny. Well, it just adds up to this connection of connection to place. You know, you have you have all these yeah. experiences and it's it's really about I think of it as intimacy, you know, um, intimacy with place. And you have these like memories of things you did everywhere and you have these right. feelings. You have like temperature and, and smells and um it just adds up to this love of place. In, in Kilkaha, I, I, you know, I just remember this, you know, when I was pretty little, just running out to the front wall and just standing there on a gray sky day with pounding surf, mm-hmm. you know, out, out on the outer flats. And, and it was just the smell of the salt air. And, and then I remember like, you know, the gestalt, as Sam Gaunt says, of, of a native forest, you know, like how you can yeah. feel yeah. that it, that it's, feels different because of all the all the things that add up to this this whole forest that are you just don't even realize the the diversity that adds up to it and so and you know the other thing I think that makes this connection is somehow you you can connect sometimes better through poetry through something that like makes you look at look at it a little different way and so you know Hawaiian song and chant and hula do that so so deeply in Hawaii and that yeah um I've I've always I've always loved song and chant and hula about places and about plants and animals and and um Mm -hmm. you know you just you can express that love of place in a little different way that makes you feel it much more powerful. It's a great way to learn Hawaiian language, you know, it's just it's yeah. to study, study it in song and chant. But going back to Keokaha, I mean, in those days, and I imagine still, that's, that's Hawaiian homelands, yeah? And so most of it or some of it. And so how did your family settle out in Keokaha? The Hawaiian homelands were near the school, which is closer okay. into town. And then there were just homes um, outside of that, okay. down a cu- couple miles past that. We were out near the end of the road, but we were right across the street from the fish pond. And, mm-hmm. you know, we had a, a very diverse neighborhood. It, w- it was just a great sort of combination of people in place and cultures, a lot of different cultures Yeah, there in Hilo. You mentioned a tsunami. What you said that was in the sixties that, and you it closed your school or you had to change your school. It was, what was the kind of rest of the response like, or the kind of like, how are, how, how are folks impacted by that thing? Well, so our, we were in a Kai elementary was out on the Waikia peninsula and um, you know, the whole Waikia peninsula and town were overrun by the tsunami. And um, you know, it was pretty devastating. And I remember evacuating for sure. 
Mm-hmm. We went across the bridge and, and actually stayed up to watch the tsunami coming in from the, the lookout um, above the bay. I don't remember it, but my father apparently went down near the bridge to watch it come in and had to hightail it back uh, upland really fast. Oh. It did. Like going the wrong way, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> what I do remember is coming back into into Keokaha the next morning. We stayed with, with friends overnight, but I, I remember coming back and just there was just Kanek, the you know the the debris from sugar plantations had washed mm-hmm. all over the roads. So obviously the wave had come all the way in over the over the road, and wow. luckily our house was okay, but but just a lot of debris. And then I, I also remember, again, I was not quite five, but I remember that my parents were part of a sort of community cleanup effort, including planting all the coconut trees that are off site uh, along the shore in Hilo Bay now. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. As right. sort of a, you know, do a breakwater kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of trees to, you know, if this happened again, would this help diminish the power of the waves? And, I just, I do remember, you know, with a little shovel and, you know, digging some holes. Yeah. Wow. Well, has Hilo changed very much since those days? I mean, uh, as a newcomer to Hawaii Island, (laughs) what do you think? I mean, is it? I think the biggest change is Koki frogs, actually. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That is a huge, huge change. And it's just a, you know, it's a huge a really unfortunate. It's just spreading all over, you know, sort of yeah. starting in, in Hilo and spreading all around, even into the higher elevations now. And it's pretty out of control. And it, it, it does create a different environment. I mean, obviously, people get used to it. Yeah. If you want to live there, that's part of what comes with the territory. But, you know, I'm not I'm not sure how much else it's changed. I mean, <laughs> I think a lot about the impact of population growth in the world and mm-hmm. how, you know, when you go from what, wherever you started one, one million, a hundred years ago to over eight million now, it's not like that happens somewhere else. It happens everywhere. It's sort of, it's sort of insidious and mm-hmm. everywhere you think of, you know, is different from how it was a generation ago because all of those people, the, the population grows in every, in every single little place. And, and that sort of adds up to this feeling of like, Oh, it's not like it used to be. and It's crowded now. And, you know, that's just how it is all over the world. Well, definitely. It's introducing challenges, just like the basics, right? How do you like find and afford homes and, and that kind of stuff? It's it's really, uh, it, it puts more social pressure and, and sort of, I think. Yep. It's lots of pressure. Yeah. It makes it more glaring, like how we're not taking care of people, in my opinion. Like, you know what I yeah. mean? It becomes more obvious how, you know, the more, more people kind of struggle, but they're not, there's not as many opportunities. Everything gets harder. Yeah. Yeah. So growing up in Keokaha, uh, so Suzanne, I remember you telling me when you had to move to the big city, <laughs> this is a while ago when we were working together and you yeah. had to like put, put shoes on to go to school. <laughs> and but Which by the way, you and I graduated from the same school and I, I would get to Attention for not wearing for not wearing shoes, so um, it, it just carried on uh, into my generation too. But uh, yeah, can you tell us what that was like, and then on how you settled into your profession as as being an attorney? Uh, yeah, I always think of that move from Hilo to Honolulu as like country bumpkin goes to the big city, and you know, and <laughs> I mean, I feel like everybody was so friendly, and when I, you know, where I was in. Kilkaha, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, part of it is fifth grade, you know, that's not a very friendly time yeah. anyway for kids. Yeah, I just, you know, I mean, ultimately it was good to have those two experiences, and a rural one and an, and an urban one. Mm-hmm. And I still was able to maintain a very outdoorsy lifestyle. And how I became an attorney, ah, you know, process of elimination. I think I, I went off to college on the on the East Coast for a couple of years, and then the West Coast. And then, you know, I tried a couple of different things. My my parents were really good at like, you know, just sort of try everything. And so, you know, I tried out being a high school counselor, and that wasn't for me. I'm I'm too introverted actually to to do that. And then and then I had a I was trying to get a after college I was trying to get a nonprofit job, and I came close, but there just weren't any paying nonprofit jobs for somebody fresh out of college. And 
So mm-hmm. I was a bank teller for, for a year. And I, I got so bored that I uh, signed up to go to law school. And that, that turned out to be the right thing because it was intellectually challenging. It was hard. I, I didn't really get law school until about my third year. Um, mm. But, you know, I think the mental engagement process and then also just figuring out over time that what I really loved was, was land law. Mm-hmm. So I became a, I went to work for a law firm in San Francisco in the real estate department. And I, I did what, what I recalled later as sort of morally neutral. I called it one pension fund buys an office building from another pension fund. <laughs> but you learn all the, the technical stuff about land transactions. And right. I did as much pro bono work as I could in, in that environment, which was quite a lot, including some for Sierra Club, some landlord tenant stuff, and a little bit for the nature conservancy. I was very, very lucky to be able to make that leap to become really a, a land lawyer for the nature conservancy after that. I'm kind of curious how you know, kind of understanding the law as it was sort of, again, I don't know how much this varies sort of state to state, but like coming from here and then coming back here, um, how you kind of view or what your perspective is on land law here, especially as it relates to, you know, the sovereignty prior to the Mahele and the transactions that kind of happened and basically all of that kind of trauma and like looking at this, I mean, I don't want to like <laughs> throw too much, it's a, it's a huge topic, but just like in the sense of, um, you know, how tenure and the kind of current law and the way we sort of look at property and things like that is maybe flawed or, you know, how, how some of that, what, yeah, just like what you've learned through that coming from that perspective, what your perspective is on that now. It's like a terrible way to frame that question. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot in there, Clay. (laughs) Yeah. Like, but it's so curious because I don't know anything about that stuff. Right. I mean, the, the legal framework for it, yeah, right, and then yeah. how you kind of people are approaching that, yeah. Uh, but because it, it is a huge thing nowadays, like land back and these these kinds of uh, injustices that mm-hmm. if you don't have the historical perspective of, you wouldn't really be aware of. But the minute you kind of dive into the history, it's like wow, right? Like there is a lot to kind of unpack. You know, I was really fortunate um, in my conservation law practice to have both. I did I did legal work for conservation mainly um, you know land transactions to protect um, places I did that all over the West and in Hawaii and then we in the 90s we grew the program at the Nature Conservancy into the Pacific so I was, I was actually the first international lawyer at the Nature Conservancy and oh, wow. that was a process of for years I, I didn't know what I was doing but after about five years I figured <laughs> out that nobody knew what they were doing and I just I then knew, knew more than everybody else and it's, it's more, more more a process of figuring out what questions to ask and then who knows the right answers right. in the U.S. the Nature Conservancy bought land and created protected areas, national parks, national wildlife refuges, nature preserves, conservation easements with landowners so that there's sort of a shared shared ownership and an agreement on, on stewardship. And we did not do that internationally because, because there were totally different land tenure situations and mostly foreigners didn't actually buy land. But, but it was a right. much more of a process of working with communities yeah. to do conservation. And so that is a different approach. It's sort of regardless of land tenure, what, you know, thinking together, what are, um, it, it was great conservation planning. It's like, what are the threats to a place? Um, what are the strategies you can come up with to to address those threats and then implementing and then a, sort of a feedback loop of, of monitoring. And so in throughout the Pacific, you know, you have a lot of community tenure, which very much like what it used to be in Hawaii. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to oversimplify it, actually, you know, big, big question, but right. the way we did the conservation projects were we did forest conservation, we did and, and still do forest conservation and ocean conservation and, uh, you know, very much of a, a community process. But but both systems, both Western systems and the, um, in Hawaii, the traditional Hawaiian um, land tenure system, I mean, 
you have a sovereign, mm-hmm. that's, you know, the country or, or the ali'i. And then in the Western system, the sovereign does land grants. And so you end up, it is much more individual focus. And, mm-hmm. and you can own land privately, whereas in the, the traditional Polynesian systems, it's, it's sort of a, it's a tenure system, you know, passed down from the ali'i to the chiefs, to the community, right. to the, the kauhale, and, and the individual is a part of that. Yeah. No, I was just going to say about that in aspects of kind of more of commons, right? Like where you have some areas that were less defined potentially as far as being beneficial. I would say both yeah. systems have, have sort of the commons. They both have a sort of a public trust. You know, there's areas where humans heavily, heavily used to grow food and gather, right. you know, fish and meat. And there's also areas that are more like, let's leave it alone and let it be part of the place that feeds us as a practical renourishment and a spiritual renourishment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have these sort of, let's use these areas intensely. And it's a heavy impact in both systems. Sure, sure. Then what's important for the whole public? I think there are similarities in both both systems. Definitely, if you have a commons and you overuse it, if you don't have guardrails mm. in both systems, you will heavily overuse and use up that which nourishes you. So guardrails being kind of principles of law that would govern those spaces too. I mean, obviously, yeah. you'd still need some kind of governance there. Yeah. And if you don't, then you're, you're, you sit up. Yeah. I'm thinking about the book that you recommended to me like 20 years ago, Suzanne, which I finally read, which it, where I'm reading, which is um, Exalted Sits the Chief. Oh, yeah. uh, because at the time I was living on Maui and I didn't know where any of these places were in Hawaii. It's the ancient history of Hawaii Island. And um, yeah. it, it's fascinating. And so there's like those resource conflicts, right? That from the old days of like, okay, these guys are going in and harvesting bird feathers for more cloaks. And they're like running into problems with the other guys over over there and like you know it's a it's a situation <laughs> that is recorded from before that yeah. you know it's like we need to make more cloaks but now yeah. we got to go get some more feathers and you know there's not enough birds over here so we got to go over there and you know it just it's like forever right those problems yep yep there, there's there's disputes and dispute resolution systems mm-hmm. which can be anywhere from you know let's talk it through to let's litigate to let's go to war yeah yeah and um mm-hmm. obviously the talking i'm <laughs> talking it through situation preferable is preferable yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so interesting because i think we're so used to uh, contrasting the old and the new you know with regard to land tenure in hawaii that i rarely think about the commonalities between the old and the new and 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 it's you've pointed them out pretty pretty significantly you know uh, that there were there are there are parallels yeah i think we tend to you know demonize one system and and glorify another and it, it's sort of like like the world is just not that simple no yeah, that's a great you point. Know, there's there's good and bad everywhere on the planet. There's good and bad, yeah. and yeah. you know. So what you're trying to do is bring out the good as as much as you can, and tamper down the bad as much as you can. And, yeah, I mean, there's lessons to be learned uh, across across the board there, historically and contemporary. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of the questions we I had sent you, you know, specifically about those legal structures from before that might exist today. Can you talk about what those might be? I think you had done some research on PASH, which maybe tell our listeners what that is and, and what you found. Yeah, sure. Pa- the PASH case, Public Access Shoreline Hoy, was over 25 years ago, was a case involving traditional rights of access to what was the commons and mm-hmm. collision with private property rights in the Western Supreme Court validated that that under certain conditions, if you're fewer sort of a, a lineal descendant, I'm oversimplifying it, but you have a right of access to conduct your traditional customary practices. And so the, there was a UH Law School had had a symposium on sort of how we implemented that. And there were a whole bunch of cases uh, post-PASH that further refined um, those principles. And so they did a symposium on like 25 years later, how have we implemented that? And so they asked if I would uh, write something. And I thought, it, you know, that would be a great opportunity at DLNR just to do a, a refresher on it. And we, we ended up spending about six months with about 20 of us staff, staff from all, all of the divisions and, um, and the AG, just 
kind of talking it through and talking through like how we implement that at DLNR and, and also what are all the examples of ways that we try to make it real. And I think the thing that's sort of most cool about it is regardless of all of those legal things, there are so many communities that want to take care of the resources yeah. in their communities. And I don't even want to use the word yeah. resources because that's just too, no. too business-like. It's, it's too reductive. Too yeah. reductive. It's, you want to take care of Evie. You want to take care of Heyo. You want to take care of of you want to restore your your uh, uh, lo mm-hmm. to the extent that they are on public land uh, under the jurisdiction of DLNR. How do we work with with those community groups to facilitate them doing that? Yeah, right. and some of it is much more complicated because it, it involves you know access to water and. Um, Mm-hmm. legal access to places. Yep. And it turns out we have dozens of, of examples, folks, state parks and forested areas in marine focused communities that are doing that and are doing it in very informal ways or very formal ways, formal ways being like the mm-hmm. community-based subsistence fishing areas in Haena um, and right. Milali'i and um, community marine managed areas like Kaupule, so so much more formal sort of rules based. So and I love that because it's very complicated, but it's a blending of the traditional caring mm. for your area and the Western right. based rule systems. They they are complicated, but you know if you can work it through, it, it comes out with something that really reflects. Our complicated life, which is very much a, yeah. you know, Hawaiian cultural base, you know, Western legal system. And, you know, it's not easy, but it, when you can pull it off and it results in restoration of an area, it's something to be really proud of. I agree completely. It's like just so beautiful because it is e- even on like the legal framework side, it's a recognition that so much of this has to be bottom up. Right. And uh, yeah. it kind of leads to a similar question, related question to that. But I mean, and this probably has to do with, and as, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about where these community-based efforts tend to be uh, more abundant and, and frequent is where people live. Right. So it's in these areas where we are. <laughs> um, and, and what happens, I think, as of course socioeconomic change, et cetera, et cetera. But like the place is more Malka, right? And that's kind of where my work was mostly. Um, but that those places tend to rely more on the professionals, right? There's not as many people accessing those places. And I'm just curious about how you think there might be potential to you know, learn from the models, like the community-based fisheries and things like that, what opportunities there might be. And also, like, given the limitations of the agencies that are kind of in charge, and I mean, those are like very material things, right? Like that there's just not a lot of people doing this work. There's not a lot of pay for the people to do that kind of work. You know, as a society, you know, my obviously my criticism is we don't invest enough, right? And so, I mean, you're coming from that huge perspective of being a chair of DLNR. Um, like, I'm just so curious about what your perspective is on this as well. Well... For sure, government can't do everything. And when when people are frustrated with government for not doing something, um, they have people have ways of um, you know advocating for more attention here, um, more attention there. And we do not have enough resources. And I mean, by by law, we have to balance our budget every year. That means the legislature, which sets the budget, the administration proposes a budget, the legislature sets it, they're setting it, all of the revenues that we have available, um, and they're allocating them. And there's needs everywhere. You know, certainly there's needs for housing, there's needs for education. Um, And so, you know, anytime you move resources around, you're, because we need to balance the budget, you're, you're taking it from something else. Even within the deal in our budget, if you say, hey, we need to do much more work here, you know, unless there's some new source of revenue or take it from outside, uh, some, from something outside, you're taking it from another priority within DLNR. So mm-hmm. it, it's, I, I just, right. you know, part of my perspective is having a deep experience of the limitations of what we have. Absolutely. Um, community efforts are 
yeah you know just a huge part of the equation and we 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 need all of that uh, so much and it's it's a very important part of it and uh, sort of that's what we we also outlined in the in the pash paper we did because you know there are there are lots of things that need attention and especially it's the power of those people connected to place mm-hmm. that you know have that historical ancestral or, or just the place you live and you want to take care of it right that you know we all have a responsibility to to take care of you know we have to take care of our home our family our community and our our world and so the com- community part of it the the neighborhood part of it the where do you love you know take care of where you love mm-hmm. and and that means going out and pulling invasive species and you know, rebuilding things and planting trees and um, picking up trash. And that's all expression of that connection to place um, that is powerful, important. Yeah. Speaking of the complexities of taking care of a place, you know, on our list that I'd sent you, I was wondering about this, you know, one of your most challenging situations where, you know, you ran into, I'm sure there are so many <laughs> legal and mission complexities involving the people and the land and or the resources, which again, you know, none of us like that word. Um, was there something in your career, and it could, doesn't have to be DLNR, where like you went into a situation, I'm sure like by by the time something gets to your desk, I heard President Obama say this once, it, it's it's gotten to your desk because it's hard. And so <laughs> people yeah. who could have figured it out, they would have figured it out. <laughs> so is there something um, that surprised you that you went into thinking one one way and then it turned out to be something else over a process of, of listening or... Yeah, I mean, there's a zillion examples of that. but And, and it's, it's true that by the time it gets to your desk, it's because, you know, it's because it's a thorny problem. And I, I came to realize if I was turning something over and over in my head, um, oftentimes it's because there is no clear answer. And so mm. you just have to come up with sort of the best answer. Mm-hmm. You know, my background is very much of a, a generalist. I, yeah. I practiced law for 18 years, and then the rest of it was management of you know, first the Nature Conservancy's Hawaii program, and then and then DLNR, and so the the background is really good because you're you're thinking things through and you're issue spotting and you're trying to problem solve. Even if you're not, you know, practicing law at that point, you're using that sort of analytical skill. But you know, one of the ones that I think was a surprising, as you said, sort of new situation where was the work to establish in-stream flow standards for streams. And what that means is, you know, under the water code in, in 1988, every stream of which there are hundreds in Hawaii is are supposed to go through an analytical process to figure out like what's most important about a particular stream in terms of like habitat, um, of cu- cultural values, recreational values versus what's important for uh, off-stream uses like domestic uses, homes, a- agriculture, and industrial uses and the like. And it's this huge balancing act. And it's very complicated and very, very little was done over the decades. There was a, a lot of work done in White Holy, um, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I came in, East Maui had been in litigation since 2001, which right. blew me away because wow. because um, I just, you know, my background is problem solving and collaborative approaches and, you know, really trying to listen to everybody and, and think it all through. And once you get to litigation, it's like conversation stops. And, yeah. Right. And I had had some background in, um, in water rights. One project in particular I did with the Nature Conservancy was on the Truckee River uh, coming out of this year in California, coming east into uh, what ended up in a, in a large lake and then um, overflowed. And there was a Stillwater National Wildlife Refuge. And people had been farming not that successfully in, in the area um, and taking water from the Truckee River. And as a result, they had water rights attached to the land. And as a result, um, the lake levels had come to a historic low. I think originally there were over 65,000 acres of lake and wetlands and then it went down to 
like 4,000 acres mm. and a lot of endangered species affected. And so we would buy up on a you know willing seller basis, fair market value, buy up those lands and retire the water rights to, to keep them in the stream and so that more water eventually went back to the lake and the wetlands. So that, that was my background. Um, but in, in this case, we had to set the in-stream flow standards for, for a lot of areas, East Maui, Navai, mm-hmm. West Maui, mm-hmm. Molokai, um, Kauai, some, some Hawaii Island. And so we had a very talented staff um, working on it and a, a very collaborative, uh, you know, sort of a deeply thoughtful and I think respectful water commission because you're balancing different perspectives from from the public and from users and differing perspectives on the commissioners and but it was a sort of a vibe that that allowed people to say what what was important to them uh, in testimony and say you know what they thought in the discussions among the commissioners and and I learned a lot uh, especially about restoration of Lo'ikalo and the how much you know 100 years of water diversion had had affected yeah you know, really dried up the taro fields. And I learned a lot about how much you need water flow and temperature right. for the health of the, of the kalo. And, and also about how much you needed the water for traditional customary gathering um, in stream. Obviously, you know, people are, uh, are gathering oopu and yeah. opa and hivai, but mm-hmm. also in the fisheries that result, that rely on healthy estuaries. And so, I just learned so much about that and then about balancing all of those uses. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up setting interim in-stream flow standards on something like 70, uh, something like 76 of them, you know, many, many dozens of streams. Yeah. And, and we did it in, in some of the decisions. Um, they weren't challenged. There was no contested case, no follow-up mm. litigation. And, mm-hmm. right. you know, it was just such a wonderful um, outcome to to come up with something that really people thought okay they they did a good job these are you know you not you don't get yeah. everything you want nobody gets everything that they want but if you come up with something that is you know works pretty well for for everyone and then you get this sort of anecdotal stories coming in about oh my god there's so much water now coming through yeah. the the Lotikalo and mm-hmm. the estuaries right. are rebounding and the stream life is rebounding and it's just such a wonderful wonderful outcome of well, a super challenging process and so i you know that one was yeah. was a really good one it's really cool too cuz um you also using like local knowledge of this place as kind of the index right like so it's not totally sitting there saying like, yo, we got to go do a million surveys to show how much water and what temperature. It's just like, you know, really placing your um, confidence in the fact that people know what they need uh, and know what makes this place healthy, right? Right. For for what they want to do. Right. Right. Even, even monitoring, even, even like what's the evidence you need and then what's the feedback monitoring, you know, is a combination of local knowledge and scientific analysis with with surveys and stuff. I mean, the more you can get of, of all of that, the more information you get of all different kinds, the, the better your yeah, the better your decision will be. And Suzanne, speaking of like restoring water to the Lo'i, which and, and and to the streams, really to the streams, you know that you, that you worked on. What's your what's your sort of like best guess on how and if you know? folks will take those mainstream flow standards and implement them over the long term. Do you think that, do you have confidence that that will, you know, change water allocation? Yes. Oh, oh yes. Well, yes, because when you set that standard, what you're saying is no matter how much water comes down, Mm-hmm. This is how much has to stay in the stream. So it's a, it's a minimum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of the minimums are, are just enough to provide connectivity for whatever stream life is there. Um, but, you know, a decision that, you know, there's not a lot of other uses in the area or um, not a lot of ecological value or mm-hmm. whatever versus, you know, all the way up to full stream restoration, you can't take water out of the stream to in the middle, like what's the basic minimum amount that keeps the stream healthy and above that you can take water out. And 
a lot of times what what will happen is the the heavy rains the freshets if you can capture that that water coming down so that you there's still water in the stream but there's extra water you can take out although you also want to be able to in some cases have the the freshets they call it the 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 flooding from a heavy rain, mm-hmm. you know, wash the stream out. And that has its own ecological value. But again, it's a stream by stream analysis. But yeah. the end result is mm-hmm. whoever is diverting the water, you have to set the diversion structure so that you always leave that minimum amount, that a minimum amount right. in the stream. And right. sometimes you you set it so that you can also leave that maximum amount in streaming, you take that middle amount. It's a, it's a, you know, it's engineering wise, it's, you got to re-engineer everything, but that's what it is. You, you can't, you, it will be implemented because you can't take more out of it. I mean, yeah. you know, over time, we're going to have more challenges as with climate change. And, you know, as you guys know, um, drought um, is, yeah. it changes the calculation of what, what amount of water is available. And we have to keep an eye on that. We have to keep revisiting that. Yeah. The drought and deluge, right? I mean, you, you're not, no one's going to divert a, from a 48-inch yeah. rainfall event in 24 <laughs> hours. You know, that's, a, that's another thing. They're not going to divert at all. But, you know, that's an, that's an opportunity to refill the reservoirs. Yeah. I, I, that is so gratifying, um, what you just described, Suzanne, to, to, to set, to to figure that one out, which is not easy, as you said, you know, not easy to like take traditional knowledge, take like a scientific, you know, understanding of the organisms and so forth and like put it all into a standard, um, you know, a standard in, in stream flow policy, whatever you want to call it. And then say, okay, this is what we're, this is what we're doing, you know, in each of these different places. And this is, this is the rule <laughs> going forward. And that means that some people get, yeah. Water back and other, you know, it's, in other words, it's not like just this vague thing that. It's also adapting to yeah. socioeconomic change in the sense that like, right, you don't have the same pressure and power structures that were like led exactly. to the first diversions right in the first place. So you are like, right. you know, it's fine. It's like showing that, oh, we can actually adapt to these changes mm-hmm. in a positive way uh, and not just be sort of stuck with these yeah. legacy issues that yeah. people just you know, taking that resource because they, they're going to make money off it. It's a great opportunity to really redefine normal because we, because we have gone through changes in certainly getting out of sugar and pineapple. Although, you know, we really want to promote local food production and, you know, we want to do it in a way that doesn't waste water and we want to, right. We do want to make sure that we have water to grow food, and so that's that's part of the the balancing. Yeah. And we have to make sure there's water for for people's homes and for Hawaiian homelands, which yeah. uh, you know is one of the prior mm-hmm. priority uses. And so it's balanced. You know, not viewing the world in black and white. It's trying to make sure you have all the information from all the sources that you can, and then making the best decision possible. You know, sometimes people don't think it's the right decision, and then it goes to litigation. And but what we're doing is the best we can in the in the world of yeah. complicated conflicting you know priorities and, and needs and uh, trying to come up with it I think one of the things that I I'm, I'm most hopeful of um, in in this process is to see over decades how much restoration mm. really works you mm-hmm. know when you when you eliminate threats um, and you you know you analyze mm-hmm. what the threat the threat is not enough water in the stream the threat is uh, invasive species the threat is we cut down on the forest but you know the the examples of like for instance uh, fencing and taking out invasive animals especially you know you've seen on Maui so much uh, in, in leeward Haleakala how much I mean these are people you know um, attacking the windmill of <laughs> of uh, dreams of like. I, I, you know, it looks like crazy, but let's let's try to take this barren landscape and build a community, replant trees, yeah. and, and throw seeds on it, and 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 let the let the you know take out the the goats and yeah. let the seed bank you know regenerate, and mm-hmm. and it works. It's just like these before and after pictures of places that were just you know uh, you had a few legacy trees remaining and and then what comes back really is native plants you know i'm just most hopeful that to see that because we didn't think that yeah mm-hmm. uh, 20 years ago we thought oh god you know once it's once it's like this it'll never come back but you know there is a resilience in there that is is pretty amazing and i, I just think the the act of caring for place 
is is healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's healing to the land. It's healing to the, the people doing it. It's healing to the community who has deep ties to the area and, you know, feels this wound and sees the land healing, the, the ocean healing. It's, it's a very powerful regeneration of people and nature. There's a lot of hope there too, I think. And, and just people need this, um, like the good, the good stories of like, yeah. Where you see like an agency, a bureaucracy where, you know, everyone kind of grumbles about, you know, the state, county, whatever, like a local government not doing this, not doing that. But then when they see an example like water diversion or the community-based fisheries in particular where like, oh, wow, like it can work in support of our interests. And obviously like there's trade-offs to be made, but um, yeah, not to mention the individual, like, oh my gosh, if you, you know, to for, to, for people to kind of forge those connections and, and being able to do the, that kind of work. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, you know, we need those kinds of stories where, you know, like actually. Yeah. It's, and you know, I mean, I, I was, um, whatever, thir- uh, 28 years in the nonprofit world, four in the private world and eight, eight in government. Government is made up of people. The people yeah. People are doing this because yeah. they care. They're, they 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 care, and they have a complicated job because they have to, re, you know, well, reflect all all perspectives, including sure. including users. And you want to come up with solutions like like fisheries restoration, where the the impact will yeah. will benefit fishers um, um, as well. Yeah, it's it's a hopeful story because because it's made up of people, public and private, who mm-hmm. who care and. You know, I think a lot about, you know, climate change being such an overwhelming train coming at us. Um, you know, my feeling is, is whatever our world is, we have to do everything we can to make it better. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's just sort of whether it'll work or not. Yeah. You take your best guess at what will work. The moral imperative is to do everything you can uh, to make it better. And, and it's a leap of faith. You know, you just... You're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, we cannot despair. (laughs) That is the the bottom line. And I think uh, our our poet laureate, uh, W.S. Merwin, said on the last day of the world, I would plant a tree. I fully, fully live that every single day. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, um, you just have to, you have to, there's no alternative really. Speaking of place, I mean, I do want to ask a personal question about, you know, uh, um, going back to our, our list of questions here, which we've been all over the place on. Um, is there, I know it's just like a very unfair question and we always say that to our guests about, you know, the one place (laughs) or, or maybe a couple places that is just in your heart, in your heart of hearts, um, that you think of, that you return to, that you love, that is like in your bones and uh, tell us about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I would say, you know, I mean, my island in my heart is Hawaii Island. And uh, so up at Volcano, I mean, I love Volcano because you can be in this beautiful Ko'ohia forest and also because of just the primordial power of molten lava. I, I when I was four years old, I, I, I witnessed the... Kilauea Iki eruption going up wow. 2,000 feet in the air. My, my parents just piled up in the car in the middle of the night, and we sat on the edge wow. of the crater in the cold. So that's one wow. one place that you, you just like feel like you're in it. And I mean, the South Kona Coast is another one. I have places there where I have I'm so intimate with it that I can do the underwater map in my head wow. um, more <laughs> easily than the above ground map. And I always have been able to do that, and I always was you know so connected that way. And and, and I would also say, you know, outside of Hawaii, I would I would put Palmyra Atoll on that list because it's a place where it's protected in many ways, a nature preserve and a national wildlife refuge and a national marine monument, um, NOAA and Fish and Wildlife Service and the Nature Conservancy and a research station. And it's just the power of seeing what a place can be like underwater and on the land, just with diversity and abundance and to be able to bring that back home to Hawaii and just say, you know, I know we can make this place better. I know we can, I know we can restore it. I know we can heal it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the flip side of all of that is, is, and if we talk to others on this podcast about, you know, to be quite frank, the grief that we feel over the losses 
that are always seeming to pile up at times. And yeah, yeah. you know, I, I don't I don't think we can be in denial about that. I think like it it has an effect, right? I mean, you know, I was in stewardship with you, Suzanne, and it's it's yeah. deeply, deeply sad when we lose you know, when we lose things. When I was in college, um, the highway in Kona was being built. And I was on the, I was on the East Coast. And my mom was sending me articles because she, she knew I cared a lot. This is the coastal highway in North Kona. And, I, you know, I had been to those places when you just, you have to really intend to get there, you know, whether by boat or by Jeep or by foot. And, and you know, just knowing how much putting a highway in just blows it wide open. And, um, mm-hmm. I mean, that is, I, I cried in college my whole first year, um, just over that highway, you know, and, you know, there is a lot of grief. There is a lot of grief. Speaking of highways, I was in, um, and the, Clay knows this because this really flipped my whole worldview at age 50. I was doing a residency for the Anchorage Museum and I went to Kodiak Island, which is the second largest island after Hawaii Island in the U.S. 13,000 people and 100 miles of road. And two thirds of it is a national wildlife refuge. Wow. And so much of it is in native hands wow. and they have their own scientists and they have their own this, that, and the other, which is not to say that it, there aren't like serious, serious colonization situations, problems, poverty, etc. But I just couldn't, I, it just changed everything for me to, to understand how it could be different or how it was or what we yeah. maybe aim for. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. just what, like what yeah. you're describing about a road going in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the power of protected places is, is, is it, it shows us, it gives us a, a comparison to impacted areas and, and protected areas. And it, and it, it, it gives us a, a vision of, of what it can be like and it, it's powerful. Yeah. And, and so is that, I mean, getting to this question about resilience in the people that that worked for you, that, you know, you try to empower and, and motivate. I mean, this is something we talked about with Brian yesterday about like motivating crews and things like what, what do you think is, is part of a part of keeping uh, part of making people resilient? Because it's it's a it's a tough one, especially with so many like existential threats. Right. Yeah. I think we're lucky to have so many people in Hawaii who are who have this connection to place. Who have, um, I mean, uh, Melissa, I have a distinct memory. Um, I, I, I hope you remember it too of us being in the back of a truck going up, <laughs> going up Haleakala, probably to Waikamoi, and uh, sitting there thinking like, what what's holding us back? And it was, you know, that we needed more basically field uh, program managers, and yeah. so as a result of that, we we started a a program, um, like a two year fellowship internship program to train folks up and that and that morphed into um, a needing similar capacity on the marine side. And 15, 20 years later, there are really good programs out there. There's uh, lots of people that are very passionate about caring for Hawaii, whether it's um, on the marine side or on the forest side or yeah. on the cultural side. And to have, you know, that that growth both in conservation and in culture, in our our own sort of Hawaii worldview has has grown and healed and relearned our past. And to have that passion um, in in so many people now focused on it, whether you're, again, whether you're in government or community or nonprofit, um, Mm -hmm. is is, does give us hope, hope for hope for the future for Hawaii. Yeah, I do remember that, Suzanne. <laughs> I also remember us up in West Maui. You came on a fencing trip when we were building fence oh, yeah. up in with the West Maui watershed guys. Uh, right, right. Uh, you were taking pictures of all of us <laughs> at, at our camps, and I, I still have those pictures. Uh, <laughs> that was a good time. Yeah, I mean, there you are. You know, getting getting dirty and wet, and and doing really hard work, and and loving it because that's you know you're make you're making the place better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the common denominator for everybody doing this kind of stuff. It's just it's come so much of it's out of love, right? And I think like you were just referring to a little bit back this that that healing and connection that they get from it um i think there's a lot of work ahead of us to 
make those folks kind of more secure in those careers mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. hang on to them. I mean, I think that's one of the things we, I, I've suddenly been involved with some conversations that are, I feel like I'm over in over my head, but you know, where the question is like, how do we really retain people and how do we, you know, and I think a lot of that has to do with, um, communicating to the public, right. And, and kind of generating more support for this kind of work. Um, because folks like West Maui Mountain Watership Partnership, they're, they, you know, these guys are all like on these shoestring budgets and we're like, man, like, how do we, yeah. how do we just sort of like cross that line where it's not a question of like scrapping for funds to get these programs going, like where there's a wider recognition of, um, just how critical this work is, right? I mean, this is like part of this place are all of these amazing areas that we, uh, that are people are working to protect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else, Suzanne, you want to add um, as we close here? <laughs> We've kind of been all over the place. No, I'm just glad you guys are doing this. You know, there's so many people out there who have basically, you know, similar passions and visions and, and dedication. And I'm, I'm just so proud um, to have spent my life working with, with, all of the folks out there who, who are really doing the work and yeah. Yeah. I honor them very much. Well, speaking of work, what's, what's next for you? <laughs> Relax. I don't know. Hiking? <laughs> Definitely hiking. Spearfishing? Or no, you don't spearfish, right, anymore? I don't spearfish anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm taking a break right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I haven't taken a real break in 40 years. And so I'm, you know. Yeah. Playing catch up at home, um, my, my family, my repairs and maintenance, my um, my community work, and just hiking as much as I can. And um, I'm I'm trying to basically just sit here and be still and um, exhale. Yeah. And then, and then just sort of see what comes into focus after that. I mean, I'm obviously committed to conservation, and whatever I do, it's going to be something that our islands and our planet. Yeah, well, we look forward forward to seeing what that what that is, and uh, you know, really appreciate you chatting with us. Today. Yeah, yeah. Well, a well deserved break, Suzanne. I, totally. I hope you take a long one for a bit, and then get right back into it. I'm sure you will. Um, it's just been so great to talk to you, Suzanne. Thank you so much for opening your your heart and your manao to us, and uh, telling us all about your experiences. Thank you. Great to talk to you both. Yeah, keep it up. 